This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. We've been studying our way through the book of Acts, and we are now in uh, chapter 27. I invite you to open, if you have a Bible, to Acts 27. If you care to use one of the Bibles we provide for you, you'll find that on page 936. We're going to cover all of 27 and through verse 16 of 28. So it's a big bite, but it's one account. It's one story. It's, it's Luke's vivid eyewitness account of this perilous uh, journey from Caesarea to Rome by way of sea. You know, Paul faced many obstacles to his ministry, uh, many human obstacles, opposition, being uh, threatened, being arrested. He has been through four trials, and he has spent the last two and a half years just about in jail, in prison. And now he faces what we would call, most a lot of people call natural disasters, as he goes by way of sea and encounters this tremendous Storm, and I remind you that uh, from the, the perspective of, of the scriptures, uh, the Israelites historically were not seafaring people, and that, that's why in scripture many times the sea is uh, depicted as that uh, uh, that place where darkness rules, where there's uh, danger, and, and so forth, and so. Paul will walk through all of that and face all of that as the servant of the Lord. And then lastly, I'm reminding you again, even as we come to the conclusion that Luke is always answering one question as he gives us all these accounts throughout his uh, theological narrative that he's giving us, and that is, how is it that the gospel of Jesus with just a few people spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and into the very heart of the ends of the earth <coughs> of Rome. He's always answering that question. And what we're going to see now is how the Lord sustained his messenger through this trial on this perilous journey. <coughs> so I'm going to begin reading at chapter 27, verse 1. I'll, I think I'll, I'll read the entire chapter, then I'll summarize some of what happens in chapter 28. At this point, Paul is still a prisoner. He is chained to a Roman uh, soldier, most of the time, he is accompanied by his friend Luke, who is his physician, and Aristarchus. And we wonder, how is it that a man who was in prison was allowed to have these people travel with him? Why were these people with him? Well, probably, again, by the grace of God, I'm sure, but uh, Luke was probably presented as his personal physician, being a physician, and Aristarchus most likely had to present himself as Paul's servant or Paul's slave, and so Paul's not alone, and this is their story. Chapter 27, verse 1. I'll make comments here and there just to add some, some color and some background to what's happening. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. The Augustan cohort were people who answered, soldiers who answered directly to Caesar, to Nero, and they were most responsible for political prisoners. And embarking in a ship 
uh, of Adramidium, which was about to sail the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Under the lee refers to <clears throat> under the protection of the, of the island from the winds by being close to it. When we had sailed across the open sea again along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia, <clears throat> and there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and putting us on board. Alexandria was in Egypt, and at this point, Egypt was the breadbasket of Rome. They would send wheat all the time to Rome. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off off Nidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycium. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Luke is giving us here a uh, timeline. The fast being over is a reference to the Day of Atonement in October when the people, the Jewish people would fast. And he says it's dangerous. We know that from mid-October all the way till March, it was very dangerous to travel uh, on the Mediterranean Sea. And being the ships that they had at that time, very few would venture to do so. So Luke's letting us know that they're right on the cusp of, of the time when no one <laughs> goes sailing in the Mediterranean. But here is Paul, he's a prisoner, and he stands up and advises them. You say, on what basis is Paul going to advise this pilot and this owner of this ship? Well, Paul tells the Corinthians, before this happened, he had already been in three shipwrecks. <laughs> so Paul knows something about this, and one scholar estimates that by this time, Paul has been some 3,500 miles by sea traveling in his missionary journey. So Paul stands and gives his opinion. This is not a prophecy. This is his advice. He says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix. You could hear that it's really hard. Phoenix would be some 40 miles away, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. They wanted to get closer to Rome, to a better place. Um, now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore, and such is life. You feel like, hey, things are going great. <laughs> Just as we hope. What's wrong with this, Paul? What are you talking about? But verse 14 comes, right? But soon a tempestuous wind, the Greek term there is the word from which we derive our English word typhoon. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. 
running under the lee of a small island called Kada, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. They would pull behind them the dinghy or the lifeboat. And after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Sometimes they would tie ropes or cables underneath the entire ship, bring it up like a, tie it off like a bow, trying to keep the ship from coming apart. That's how bad it was. Then fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along, and really not under control. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. The very reason they're going to Rome. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Sailors tossing out the, their own tools, the things they need. <clears throat> and when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And since they had been without food for a long time, Paul, here's that man again, <laughs> here's that prisoner. Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And you could imagine Luke thinking, Don't give him the I told you so speech, please. You always get us into a mess, Paul. Always having to open your mouth. But he turns around, he becomes very positive. Verse 22, Yet now... Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, this is not Paul's insight now. This is revelation to him. Verse 23, for this very night there stood before me an angel, an angelos, a messenger of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul which implies he was struggling with fear himself, you must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. An implication here that Paul had been praying for everyone, and the Lord has answered his prayers. It's God's gift to you, Paul. Not only are you going to make it, but everyone whom you've been praying for. So take heart, men. Verse 25. Here's the heart of it all. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. The messenger didn't tell him all the details. Now, watch as he continues. When the 14th night had come, picture that, 14 starless nights. And as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. And so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. In other words, they're getting closer to shore, and that's what they're suspecting. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Now, some archaeologists say this probably was not four anchors coming down at one time, but there's evidence that they would lay down one anchor, let it drag, and right when that rope was going to snap, they'd cut it off, lay down a second, and then cut it off. And there's been, archaeologists have found anchors underwater, one, two, three, and four, and then a shipwreck. And so this was probably what they were doing, slowly, slowly trying to bring this boat under, under control. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, 
and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea, that lifeboat, under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Paul is certainly having tremendous influence by this point. And they cut that rope off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you, of any of you a well-known Hebrew um, colloquial way of speaking. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And we see here, again, the way Luke has been careful to show how Paul followed the footsteps of the Lord in so many ways. Like Jesus, he set his face to, to Jerusalem. Like Jesus, he was arrested falsely. And like Jesus, he went through false trials. Like Jesus, now he stands up almost like the Lord with the loaves and the fishes. And he breaks the bread and he encourages these people who are around him. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. Now, other manuscripts say, uh, other ancient manuscripts say 76, but again, uh, uh, scholars and uh, archaeologists have demonstrated that there very well were ships that could handle 276 people. The majority of them were probably prisoners on their way to Rome to become entertainment for the emperor, uh, you know, to, to go through trial and so forth. Uh, passengers, and especially prisoners, and all these people would spend the night on, on deck. And so they've been on deck through these storms for, for weeks now. They all, they all kind of get to know who, who each other is. And this man, Paul, keeps speaking, and God keeps giving him favor. And so when they had eaten enough, verse 38, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea, the very last, the precious cargo that was being carried to Rome. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, so they saw some land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to, to run the ship ashore. They said, there's a beach, let's run the ship there. Uh, we think we know what that is now, and that, that bay is now called St. Paul's Bay. Pretty sure that's the very one. And so they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes, they tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. It was being pounded, and this ship was now coming to pieces. Now, the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. You remember that uh, if you were a Roman so soldier and your prisoner got away, you would receive the punishment that prisoner was to receive. And so most of these were going to face the death penalty. And so these soldiers uh, would rather the prisoner be killed than they themselves uh, face the death penalty. But the centurion, here's how God has favored Paul. What an amazing thing he's done. The centurion, this is Julius, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He puts himself in danger for the sake of Paul. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, 
and the rest on planks or on pieces of, of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. It was exactly as the Lord had said. But the journey's not over for Paul. He's not at Rome yet. They landed on Malta, and neither are the trials over for Paul. While he was there on the island reaching in for a stick by a, a fire, a viper, a poisonous viper, latches onto Paul's hand. So it wasn't enough to be a, a danger in sea. It wasn't another, enough to uh, be stranded and have your ship fall apart. He also needs to be bitten by a viper. <laughs> and so he shakes the viper off, and the people there are amazed by this. They think he's going to die. When he doesn't, they think he's a god. But where did this all lead? It led to Paul praying for some and them being healed. And he, they spent three months there on that island. No doubt he spoke about Jesus, the power of God's grace with them. That's why they were healed and so forth. What a great testimony and what a captive audience on an island, the island of Malta, for three months. Well, then we come to what happens afterward. Verse 11, after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island. I'm in verse 11 of 28, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and a ride of Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. That's in the Bay of Naples. So they are now at Italy and they're just a bit from Rome. There we found brothers, that is Christian brethren, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. Rome at last. And then he describes a little more what happened as, as they went towards Rome. And the brothers there, that is there in Puteoli and that region, when they heard about us coming out of Rome, they came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. You can still see some of the ruins of those places today on the Appian Road. That was about a two to three day journey. And so it's, it's as if, you know, Luke writing to his readers, uh, he's depicting something that royalty would receive when a, a victor would be coming back. The, the people would come out from the city to meet him on the way. Here's Paul arriving as a prisoner, but he is a victor in God's hands, and they come out to meet him. Uh, on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. It was just as the Lord said, here I am coming to Rome. And when they, we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. That's the end of this perilous account. From Caesarea to Rome, the emperor's all-expenses-paid trip for Paul all the way to the city of Rome. Not the kind of cruise ship that you and I would take today. I can imagine, Paul, I wonder if you can too, on board this ship, perhaps I know I would think this, saying, Jesus, <laughs> you promised that I would testify to you in Rome, I know you've called me to this. Why are you making it so hard? Aren't I, aren't I in the center of your will? I'm just doing what you asked me to do, going where you told me to go. Why so hard? Why so many obstacles? Why so many difficulties that keep compiling for Paul on the way to his God-ordained destination. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever thought that? I know I've thought that. 
You ever, you ever find yourself reflecting on this? Jesus, you called me to this job. Jesus, you called me to this city, to this place. Lord, you called me to this ministry. You called me to this role, to this church, to, to, a, to, sing, to a single life. You called me to this marriage. You've, you've called me to this school, what have you. I'm seeking to serve you. Why is it so hard? Why all the difficulties? when I'm trying to do what is right. Why so many struggles on the way to doing what is right? Hmm. Well, it's in times like these that those of us who believe, believe that our God is a God who is sovereign over all things, like Ephesians 1 says, working all things together according to his perfect will and plan, we find great comfort in that reality. And Paul had been comforted already uh, in regards to God's control of his life and his pains and his circumstances two years earlier. Remember, two and a half or so in prison, Jesus met him, appeared to him, stood by him, and reassured him by affirming the fact that he was aware of what was happening, he was with him in what was happening, and lastly, that he was in control of what was happening. He said, you must testify to me in Rome. That's not a commandment, remember. That's a, that's a, a reality. It is going to happen. It is his divine must. And so Paul had been completely assured but of this idea of God's control of, of all of life's circumstances. But what this chapter adds to that chapter, or what might say expands upon it, is it reminds us of that mysterious harmony between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The sovereignty of God the idea that God is in control of all things and has decreed all things whatsoever which come to pass, the sovereignty of God never negates human responsibility and accountability. What God has decreed will happen, what God has predestined will happen, and when it happens, it will also be the result of the free choices of morally accountable human beings. God coerces no one to do anything. There are always two wills behind every action, every decision. God's divine will, his plan we might say, and the human will, the choices of moral agents which they freely made. The Bible's filled with examples of this, the ones that stand out. I just remind you briefly of them. Genesis chapter 50, the story of Joseph who uh, was sold into slavery by his brothers, and then at the end, there are his brothers appearing before him, and he is now second to, 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 uh, to Pharaoh in control of these things, and reflecting back, what did he say to them there in Genesis 50? He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. There was only one it, <laughs> and the it was what? Their decision to sell him into slavery. God meant it for good. You had one thing in your heart towards me, and it was evil. But God had another thing in his heart toward me, and it was good, and it was in the same action, you see. That mysterious harmony between divine sovereignty and human accountability. And there's, I think, only one greater example of that in Scripture, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus. Was that the plan of God? 
Absolutely. Was it a sin, a crime to crucify an innocent man like Jesus? Absolutely. And we've came over this in Acts chapter 4 when Peter was preaching. And in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, as he was preaching, he says in verse 27, Truly in this city, in Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. He is praying to God, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. What do they, what do they gather together to do? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You mean the crucifixion? Yes. And in chapter 2, 23, he drives home their guilt in this all the more when he says, again, there this time he's preaching, and he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the, watch this, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. You crucified and, and killed by the hands of of lawless men accountable for their lawless actions of crucifying the Son of God. And so we have in here in chapter 27 a very similar thing, uh, this harmony between divine sovereignty, you will go to Rome and you will be safe, and human responsibility actions need to be taken. Paul knew, in other words, Paul knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, what? That not only he would make it to Rome, but that all of them would be saved because God told him so, right? God said so. But he also knew that just because God said this, uh, it does not mean they have nothing to do, right? And he knew that their actions, their decisions would be the very means that God would use to fulfill what he said he would do to help them all arrive safely. Uh, scripture teaches us that God decrees the end. In other words, this is what's going to happen. That he declares the, the end from the beginning, but he also degree, decrees the means of how that's going to happen. In other words, this is the how, not just the what, but this is the how it's going to happen. And so God has decreed that his children would come to faith and be saved and, uh, in hearing the gospel. He's also decreed that you and I go and preach the gospel to them and whoever brought that gospel to you. Paul knew this. He understood that. He knew God promised to save them all, but this didn't mean, this didn't make Paul some sort of passive fatalist. God says we're all going to be saved. Don't do anything. No, they needed to do what they needed to do. They needed to eat food because they're going to need all the strength they have to do what? To, to fight, to survive, swim to shore, make it, you see. And so this is the, a theology that undergirds this whole chapter. Uh, but we have reflected on this before, so I won't go any further into that. What I really want to focus on, that being the foundation of what is happening here, I want to focus on Paul's experience through all of this and consider how it is that the Lord sustained him through yet again more obstacles more hindrances, great terrors. He was to some degree afraid himself at this point. How is it that God sustained this man? Because how he does it for him is how he may do it for you and me. And he did it through not making Paul some sort of superhero, not through some natural capacities that he had as some superhero Christian, 
but he did it through, through two spiritual graces which we also possess, and that is through the grace of confidence in God's word and through the grace of consciousness of God's mastery. I'll explain what that means in just a moment. He did it through the grace of, of his confidence in God's word. Verse 25, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. I believe that what God has said to me is going to happen. I have absolute confidence in his word. And this word that was given to Paul uh, in this journey, in one sense, wasn't a new word. Uh, the, the God's messenger had already come to him. The Lord Jesus himself had come to him two and a half years before and told him, you will testify in Rome. And now this, this message that came to him that night from God's messenger, that part wasn't a new message. He didn't need a new revelation. He didn't need a new promise. What did he need? He needed to be reminded of what God has already told him, of what God has already spoken, and he needed to trust again, trust again in God's word to him. This would be an anchor in his soul for this storm. And there was also a further word that was new, and that was what? Not only that he would make it to Rome, but it implied he'd be safe, but that everyone would survive that everyone would be saved. And so he and everyone with him who heard that promise, that all would be saved, <coughs> including Luke and Aristarchus, two Christians, they would have, all of them, would have everything they might place their hope in stripped away. Their cargo, their tackle, their anchors, the lifeboat, and at the end, the, the very ship itself that they, were, that they were all aboard, all of it would be stripped away from underneath them. And the question was, will you trust that word that God's messenger says was given to him? Will we trust that word that God's servant, Paul, says was given to him from God? Paul had made up his mind but where would they think? How would they respond, you see? Well, strictly speaking, what would save Paul is not his faith, but the object of his faith, right? The God in whom he was trusting by faith and the word that God has sent to him by faith, he needed to trust. The object of faith is what is all important, right? Faith has been described over and over in the church as merely a hand. A hand that in trusting lays hold of God, lays hold of God's word, lays hold of, we saw last week, Christ, right? The gospel is a word that presents to us Christ. And so faith is merely a hand that lays hold of God and what God has said, his, his word. This is what would save Paul, God, not his faith, you see. And we also lay hold of God and his promises, not only at the beginning of our Christian life. Faith is not a momentary thing, but we, by faith, lay hold of 
Christ. We lay hold of who he is for us, what he has gained for us. We lay hold of him by faith at the beginning for our justification, forgiveness of sins. And then we lay hold of him by faith every day for perseverance, for endurance, all the way until glorification, you see. We sang a song, didn't we? Till the race is finished and the work is done. What's the next line? We walk by faith and not by sight. You sang that. Do you believe it? <laughs> well, see, that's what Paul was experiencing. And so it wasn't his faith that saved him, but the object of his faith which was sure and solid, and we do this every day. Those of you that drive across the, the Carquinas Bridge or the Benicia Bridge in either direction, uh, when you go across that bridge, it's not your faith that the engineers got it right that gets you across, right? It's not your faith. It's what? The strength of the bridge. Why did you get across? Because of the strength of the bridge. But it was your faith that led you to go across. And so will they receive this word from God's servant? A word that his, the, the Lord's servant said was given to him. Would Luke receive it? Would Aristarchus receive it? Will you receive it? Will we receive it? Are we laying hold by faith of him who has laid hold of us and promises to sustain us? You see, That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about, isn't it? Remember the book of Hebrews? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Chapter 11, verse 6. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Believe that there is a new creation coming. Believe that the resurrection is coming. Believe that there's a kingdom coming. Believe that this life is preparation for the next life. And so he said, by faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham left everything he knew and had to trust God's word. By faith, Moses uh, said no to the Egypt's riches and chose rather to be mistreated. Why? Because by faith, he was looking to the reward, you see. By faith. We lay hold of God and lay hold of his word, his Christ, to be justified, but also to persevere, to have hope, to have hope fill our hearts. In fact, the author of Hebrews ends with that, with that um, admonition. Remember, he turns the corner in chapter 12 and says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Noah, Abraham, uh, David, Moses, they're all watching us. Huh? He says, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witness. Let us. It's our time. It's your time. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely or entangles us because it's part of us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how do we do it? Looking. The implication from this whole chapter is what? By faith, looking to Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fixing our eyes on him who endured the cross for the reward that was coming. Look at him, he says, and endure what God has set before you. We have need of endurance, the book of Hebrews says. <laughs> We have need of endurance, and we also have need of examples or we wouldn't have been given chapter 11. 
And that's another reason we've been given Acts 27. We have need of real-life examples to help us understand, yes, God can do this. Beloved, the Lord leads us, leads you into storms even when you're on the road to what he told you you should be doing. He leads us into storms to show us several things. One, to show us just how sure and unbreakable his word and promises are. He strips us of the cargo, the anchors, the lifeboat, the ship itself. He strips us of our plans, strips us of times of our health, of our wealth, to show us several things. One, just how true, sure, and unbreakable his promises are. And he leads us into these storms to accomplish a work in us as well. Not just disclose to us who he is and how sure his word is, but to do that work of of perfecting us into the image of his son, conforming us into the image of his son, growing our trust in his promises and his true word. Psalm 119, 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Really? Say what? (laughs) Come again? (laughs) Is that in scripture? It was good for me that I was afflicted. How so? That I might learn. That I might learn your statutes. Some things are only learned in uh, storms, in shipwrecks, failed businesses, lost investments. Illness, other travails. Consider all joy, my brethren, says James, when you fall in various trials. Trials of all kinds, he means there. Trials of all shapes and colors. For you know, what What do we know? What, what should we know? That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We have need of endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, that is spiritually mature, lacking nothing. We have great need of that in our day, I think. Greater maturity, stability. Paul's only hope was what? Wasn't the anchors, wasn't the lifeboat, wasn't the ship, wasn't the cables, wasn't the the sails, wasn't the sailors, wasn't any of this. Paul's only hope was God's word, his promise. And he, in the midst of this dark time, was standing firmly upon God's word. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, says Paul. Amazing, huh? Exactly as I've been told. So here was one man in the midst of 270 plus souls on this place, this ship. One man with his heart full of hope. 
That's all he had. And God raises him to a position of influence where he's able to minister to all these others. And beloved, that was in a secular context. It was not the church. Surrounded by pagan sailors and, and, and soldiers and merchants and prisoners, lawbreakers. He stands and breaks bread and gives thanks and He's elevated to a position of influence uh, by God in a secular context because of what? He stood on God's word. He had hope when everyone else around him had lost all hope, including his two buddies, apparently. (laughs) Well, when another possibility came about, and Paul had encouraged them But here's something very instructive. When another possible way of surviving this came about, remember they thought they were getting close to land. What did some sailors do? They decided, I'm done trusting this crazy little Jew guy. I'm getting in in a lifeboat. Let's go. Let's get in a lifeboat. Let's say we're going to toss some anchors over this way. Um, Commenting on that, Commenting on that, one author says this, and I quote him, he says, pragmatism says, abandon ship and take your chances rowing for shore. There it is. We still have the lifeboat. Abandon ship and take your chances rowing for shore. Faith says, stay aboard a sinking ship and trust God's promises. Let me say that again. Pragmatism says, abandon ship and take your chances rowing for shore. There's got to be another way. Look, land's over there. We still have the lifeboat. Don't believe this man, what he says God says. But faith says, stay aboard a sinking ship. That ship God put you on. That ship God called you to. That ship you said yes to, you committed yourself to. Stay aboard it. And trust God's promises. You know. In our walks, how quickly do we sometimes turn away from what God has said because there seems to be a, a, a more humanly possible and easier way to get this done <laughs> that won't involve maybe so much peril and so much trusting God. It's like leaning on him for everything. The ship's sinking, man. (laughs) How quickly that can happen in our walks. Let me ask you, are you you on a sinking ship? Well, some think the whole state is sinking, right? So all of us would have to say, yeah. Are you on a sinking ship? What do I mean? Ministry you said yes to? uh, A job where God has placed you? I know, Lord, this is where you put me. You sent me here. I understand that. I said yes. A relationship that you know that to be right with God, you, you ought to stay committed to. Well, you know God's will on that. Are you on a sinking ship? Are you tempted to 
Row for shore? You, 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 you tempted to jump ship? Faith says, stay aboard. Stay aboard where God has called you to be and you know what your convictions are. I'm not going to get into particulars for each of you, but understand that some are in marriages you need to stay in. And you've made some yes statements to others and that yes needs to be yes and your no needs to be no. As a servant of Christ. And so trust his word. That needs to be their anchor. And so his, it was his confidence in God's word and more briefly it was his consciousness of God's mastery. What do I mean? He knows to whom he belongs and he knows who, who he serves. Paul knew that his life was not his own and therefore he could trust God's judgment in everything that's happening and keep alert to what God might have him do. Look what he says in verse 23. This very night there stood before me an angelos, a messenger of the God, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Now your translation might say whom I serve. The NIV, the New American Standard, the New King James translates that word uh, serve, and it's, it's a good translation that way as well. Paul is saying, I know whom I belong to, and I know whom I serve. And of course, he served differently than you and I in some degree. He was an apostle, an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But beloved, every one of us, if you're a Christian, every Christian in this room, wherever you are online watching, every Christian can say by conviction, of his relationship to the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is the God to whom I belong. Can you say that? And he is the God whom I serve. See, that's what held Paul up as well. My life is not my own. I belong to God. We are his property. We're purchased at a great price. He purchased with blood a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue for his own possession. Peter says that you are a holy nation, a people who have been purchased for his own possession. Paul said to the elders at Ephesus on that beach when he said goodbye that they were to be shepherding the flock of God, the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. He told the Corinthians that they had been bought and were no longer their own. Well, that was something that he was conscious of, you see. Knowing that your life belongs to someone else can serve a couple of things. One, it can serve as a restraint, right? That's what Paul was saying to the Corinthians who were getting involved in sexual immorality. And he said to them, reminded them, hey, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body not all yours you see and so knowing that your life belongs to God can serve as a restraint but beloved in a storm <laughs> in the storms of life knowing that you belong to someone else can serve as a reminder of God's watchful eye over you it can serve as a reminder that not not all the forces of nature like what Paul was facing nor all the plans and schemes of evil human beings. None of that could somehow take you out from under God, not only sovereign, but his infinite loving eyes and watch care. 
over you. You are the apple of his eye. Now, that does not mean that God insulates Christians from trouble. Paul saw the same starless nights. Paul saw the same waves tossing them back and forth. Paul had to dive into the same sea, you see. And Paul, and no one else, had to be bit by the viper. (laughs) It doesn't mean that God, our Lord, will insulate us from trouble, but it does mean that because we belong to Him, beloved, He is with us through that trouble, aware of all that trouble, and working out His purposes in that trouble all the time. Your pains are not purposeless. Thank God for that. Because you belong to him, nothing would separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 38 and 39. And so Paul says, I am conscious of the fact that I belong to someone else and he decided to send a storm. (laughs) Unlike Jonah, not because I'm running away but he decided to send a storm even while I'm doing what he sent me to do. (laughs) Even as I'm going where he sent me to go. But I trust him. And so he was conscious of whom he belonged, but he was also conscious of the fact that he was God's servant of whom I serve. That, that verb there is latreo. It means to minister, to serve. And that's why the other translations translated serve. This is the language of priestly uh, duty, priestly responsibility, serving in the temple and so forth, and worship. And beloved, everyone serves someone or serves something. We all worship someone or something because God has made us worshipers. And Paul was a servant of God as an apostle. He opened many of his letters that way, right? Paul, a servant of Christ to the church at so. But beloved, if you're a Christian, you also are a servant. In a different way, surely, but you are also his. You belong to him. You are no longer a slave of sin, but you are now a slave to righteousness, as Paul says in Romans 6. You are able to respond to God. You have been gifted by Him through the Holy Spirit. You are sent into the world and sent into the church to serve the living God. And the question is whether or not we are, we are aware of that. We, we are alert to that. And so here is Paul in the midst of a storm. Here is Paul facing all these dangers. He's been in prison. He faces dangers from sailors, from soldiers, from storm, from shipwreck, from vipers, <laughs> he faces all these dangers, and all the time, what's he alert of? He's alert of the fact that he belongs to God, and he's also God's servant. What is there in, in here for me to serve God? He stands up. He speaks. He remains committed to, to fulfilling his calling, even in the middle of all this, Right? And how, where did this take Paul? It took him to such an unbelievably elevated status in this whole story. The, st- the story begins with Paul as a prisoner, and it ends with him leading the whole ship, the whole crew. <laughs> the story began with 
Paul a prisoner and Julius in charge. It ends with Paul in charge and Julius kind of just fades into the background. One man, one man among 276 who remembered who he belonged to and whom he served and therefore his heart was filled with hope and that hope radiated and people listened to him. People observed him. There had to be something different about him. When it says he stood up among them, some translators take that as, as he stood out among them, you see, when he stood up and began to speak the word of God. People, I'm sure, began to wonder on that deck of that ship, what is the inner secret of this Jew, this rabbi? What is it about him? What is hidden in his heart that I don't possess? It led to him being a testimony to God, healing many on that island, giving testimony to God. And though, again, though we're not told, I'm sure he spoke about Jesus for those three months with that captive audience on the island of Mark. I hope someone may say that about you. What is her secret? How can she stay above it all as a mom in such turmoil, all the things that are going on in their lives? What is it about him that helps him just stay buoyant and true when this culture is falling apart? I hope someone's saying that about you. Paul is uh, not unlike Joseph in this story. I've already pointed that out in the beginning, but think about it. Remember the story of Joseph. It began with him be being given a vision, and in that vision, these dreams, there was a promise, a promise of rising authority over his family and, and providing for them, and all that did was, was lead his, his uh, brothers to become jealous. In their jealousy, they sell him into slavery. He goes into Egypt as a slave, and then he's imprisoned by Potiphar, because of a lie from Potiphar's wife, he finds himself in prison like Paul, but not for two and a half years, but for some 13 years. But where does the story end? He comes out by God's grace, and he's elevated, as we said already, to that second highest position of authority, a secular nation, Egypt. Second only to Pharaoh. In order to do what? In order that God's vision that that plan that he showed him as a young boy without all the details in order that all that would be fulfilled. And so it was with Paul's experience as well. And he remained conscious that he belonged to God and God is going to do what he said he's going to do. The point for Paul, beloved, was never to fulfill his plans his way but just to follow God's leading, remember who he belongs to, and be conscious that he's a servant. And so it is with you. The point and goal of your life cannot be that your plans, your goals, your businesses, your desires be fulfilled as you design it, but that you remember to whom you belong as you go along and seek to serve him in whatever circumstances 
He sends your way knowing he sent them and his hand is still on you. Remember the, po- the waves that he sends in your life are never, ever pointless. They are serving the great purposes of God. And so, what do we do? We cling to God's nature as our sovereign God, but we don't fold our hands. We remember we're the means to the end. We follow God's lead. Remember who we belong to. Remember whom we serve. May God help us to be that in our perilous times uh, where we live. Don't jump ship. Trust God's promise. Let's pray.